first bottle of alcohol that I ever purchased was when I was a seminary student in New Orleans. Now, I feel like I probably should explain that to you. Um, moving to that God-forsaken, mold-infested, drowning in humidity city had kicked my allergies into overdrive, and it caused me to regularly battle upper respiratory infections. And one night in particular, I was coughing my head off. Uh, I, I could not go to sleep there in my apartment. My over-the-counter medicines were not touching my cough at all, and I was in desperate, desperate need to get some sleep. And I had heard that something called a hot toddy might work. Now, never mind that as a small-town Baptist boy, I barely knew what a hot toddy was. I only knew that it uh, involved in some way whiskey and honey, but I was desperate. So I drove to the grocery store, which you could do in New Orleans in the middle of the night, purchased a very cheap bottle of whiskey and probably a more expensive bottle of honey. I went home, made what was surely the worst hot uh, toddy ever made in the history of the world, choked it down, and before going to sleep, and I was able to go to sleep, I put it in the cabinet above my stove in my apartment, forgot all about it. Fast forward a month or so, my seminary buddy fellow pastor named David Kendrick came over to the apartment to pick me up to go out to dinner with some of my other seminary buddies, preachers in training. Now, David was hysterical, one of the funniest people I've ever met, but he's also the nosy type, and he just started kind of opening my closets, my cabinets, just to see what was there, and you can and have already guessed what happened. He found my whiskey, and he immediately began to question my salvation and stuff. Not my salvation per se, but my general faithfulness, sin, perhaps in purchasing the alcohol, and sin in continuing to keep it in my apartment. Needless to say, our little group of know-it-all seminary preacher boys had a very lively time debating whether you could be a good Christian or perhaps even a Christian at all if you drank alcohol. Now, what we were debating was the issue of personal choice in the matter of conscience. Now, what's a matter of conscience? Well, it's an issue about which the Scripture's instructions are ambiguous or where Scriptures provide freedom on a particular issue within very specific and tight guidelines that not everyone might feel a freedom to engage. Issues like alcohol consumption, where the teaching of Scripture is that there are freedoms existing within some very tight, specific guidelines. Now, opinion on matters of conscience can be volatile. To demonstrate to you how volatile they can be, some here are trying to keep your mouths from falling open because I said from the pulpit that Scripture gives freedom within tight guidelines concerning alcohol and some of you are trying to stifle an eye roll because I said there are very specific and tight guidelines. And if either of those reactions are yours, then great, my plan worked. I was trying to provoke a reaction. So with that in mind, I hope you found Romans 14 in your copy of God's Word. Debates, even division over matters of conscience are not new. In fact, our passage from Romans today sees Paul addressing a matter of conscience that was threatening to divide the Roman church along ethnic lines. 
Now, it's a pretty easy text for us to walk through, so we'll do that fairly quickly, and then I'll highlight three principles from it that we can leverage that will help us navigate matters of conscience we might face, and then to help us see how these principles might work, I will apply them to decisions that we may make personally about alcohol. And as I'm sure that I now have everyone's attention, let's jump right into Romans 14 in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, the big questions in those four verses boil down to who is the weak in faith, what opinion is it that they are quarreling over, and what is Paul commanding these people to do? Well, the first two questions are related. The one who is weak in faith is a reference to someone whose conscience is still bound by what we could call today kosher laws. So the opinion that they're quarreling over in the Roman church is whether it was a sin for Christians to not observe kosher laws and not keep the Jewish holidays. Keep in mind that the church in Rome was a mixture of, Jewish, of Jesus followers from a Jewish background and Jesus followers from a Gentile background. So this would have been a lively and fractious debate between these two groups. The Jewish believers had grown up obeying the laws of the Old Testament regarding what food could be eaten, laws whose purpose it was to provide a visible point of separation from the pagan culture that existed around them. So they had always been taught that it was a sin to, for instance, eat pork, and that it was a sin to not, for instance, celebrate Yom Kippur. But the Gentiles had never been bound by those rules, and so they felt complete freedom to eat a bacon sandwich while blowing off Yom Kippur. And this was causing friction within the church. Now, why does Paul call the believers whose consciences were still bound by those, those kosher laws and by those Jewish holidays weak? Well, because... All of the Jewish ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, including the kosher laws, find their fulfillment in Christ. And as such, Christians are not bound by the kosher laws and to observe the holidays of the Jewish religion. That is a point that Paul has made earlier in the book of Romans and which is made over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. So they were weak in continuing to observe these things because their consciences were being hindered by their tradition and were not being formed by the full teaching of the gospel. But it's likely that those who continue to observe the kosher laws and the Jewish holidays considered themselves to be super-Christians and not weak because in their mind they were doing more going beyond what their Gentile brothers were doing. But Paul says 
It's actually the opposite. Their understanding of true freedom in Christ had been diminished by their misunderstanding of what Christ had accomplished on their behalf. They were not being super Christians. They were, in fact, immature Christians. So here's the situation. You have Gentile believers bringing those delicious pork little smokies wrapped in crescent rolls to church potlucks, knowing that doing so would tick off the Jewish believers. You had Jewish believers judging them for it and Gentile believers mocking Jewish believers in return for their judginess. And what's Paul's command? Simply this, quit, stop it. And he says something that no one expected him to say. He says, God has accepted into his family believers who hold both convictions. He has accepted into his family pork eaters and pork abstainers. And every believer will have to answer to God for their own conscience on that particular matter. So pork eaters, Paul says, stop trying to force your opinion on those who won't eat it. And pork abstainers, Paul says, quit judging those who love bacon. Amen. Paul then says this, beginning in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats it in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now, Paul's lens here has shifted to focus more on the observance of Jewish holidays, but the kosher laws are still in view, and his point's still the same. Stop judging one another on your convictions on this matter. But in his command here, he's actually expanding on an idea that he introduced in verse 4, and that is to judge someone regarding their conviction of matters of Jewish observance is to act as the judge of another one's servant, namely to arrogantly assume that you have the same authority as the Lord himself to command behavior on an area that is a matter of conscience in another believer's life. The twist, though, in verses 5 through 9 is that both those who abstain and those who don't are exercising their conscience and are seeking to honor God with their decision. In in other words, both groups are trying to honor the Lord in their decision about observing kosher laws and Jewish holidays. And by way of implication, they are being told they should consider the Lord in that decision. Pork eaters should have considered the Lord in their decision to eat a bacon sandwich. Why am I free to do this? They should be asking themselves. And pork abstainers should have based their decision to abstain on pleasing the Lord and not as an effort, as it tends to be with legalistic kinds of things, to prop up their own self-righteousness. With the bottom line being, both sides should exercise their conscience in a way that allows them in their decisions to glorify God. 
which leads Paul to say this in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will have a given account of himself to God. Each of us will have to stand before God and give an account for ourselves and our decisions before God. So Paul is saying, exercise your own conscience before God in areas of freedom where Scripture provides freedom and stop judging one another based on your personal decision. Now simply, three principles grow out of what we've quickly overviewed together. Let me give them to you very quickly. First, in matters of conscience, seek unity. In matters of conscience, seek unity. Decisions in matters of conscience should never, ever be a source of division among believers. Next, in matters of conscience, give glory. We should all be fully convinced in our own minds that the Lord has led us to our decision in a matter of conscience and that our actions in light of that decision honor the Lord. And finally, in matters of conscience, exercise caution. In other words, each of us must remember that we will all have to give an account to God for our ethical and lifestyle decisions. Which leads us now to the application of these principles into personal decisions that we might make about alcohol consumption. Now, every person here this morning is somewhere on a continuum of four different viewpoints regarding their relationship to alcohol, what they think about alcohol. But be warned, only two of them have any biblical support whatsoever. On one end, we have people who generally throw caution to the wind when it comes to alcohol. You may not get stumbling drunk ever, but you do pretty regularly drink past the point to, say, safely operate an automobile. And when you drink, you always make sure there's a designated driver, for instance. That's not good. Or, or past the point of discretion. And, for instance, your inhibitions are Lord. Scripture says repeatedly, repeatedly, that drunkenness is a sin against God, but you willfully ignore that the Bible says that. In other words, you have a practice of alcohol usage that is sinful because you stray outside the boundaries of biblical usage. Isaiah 5.22 says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. That's unbiblical. That's sinful. And if we hold that attitude towards alcohol where we're careless and regularly past the point of being in control, we need to repent of that before God. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who believe that any consumption of alcohol by anyone for any reason is sinful, that alcohol itself is inherently sinful. Scripture says that wine is a sign of the Lord's blessing to gladden the heart of man. That's in Psalm 104.15. But you willfully ignore that that is in Scripture at all. In other words, you have an attitude toward alcohol usage that is sinful because you push the Bible further than what it says. 
Revelation 22, 18 through 19, which specifically addresses the book of Revelation, but which all of Orthodox Christianity treats as a general summation of how we should relate to Scripture, says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And if that is your attitude, that too is sinful and needs to be repented of because it's pushing past what Scripture says. So, two of our four possible relationships that we can have to alcohol are sinful because they both in some way disregard completely what Scripture says. But there are two in the middle that are not unbiblical and have biblical support. One, of course, is consuming alcohol while anchored to the teaching of Scripture on the subject, which is this, proceed with both thanksgiving and caution. Now, that will look different for different people who are in the gamut of those who drink on special occasions like holidays or anniversaries or vacations or with a certain kind of food all the way to those who might have multiple drinks a week. That's one of the two biblical responses a person can have to alcohol. The other is to understand that Scripture allows freedom, but to personally choose to abstain. However, even in that decision to abstain, there is something of a continuum in play. First, there are those who abstain, or at least should abstain, because consuming alcohol is against the law. You're not 21. And the law prohibits you from drinking unless you think it is no big deal to break a law. Go back and listen to Kevin's sermon from Romans 13 just a few weeks ago. Then there are those who abstain because they believe that the Lord has essentially called them to a fast from alcohol as a God-called sacrifice of their personal devotion, something like the Nazarite vow that we see in the Old Testament, which had three commitments, and one of those commitments was to abstain from strong drink. You know that not everyone is called to that. You don't require others to be called to that. You don't see yourself as more spiritual because you abstain, and you don't judge those who don't. But that's what you just personally believe that God has called you to do. Then there are those who abstain, or at least should abstain, out of wisdom. Perhaps alcohol addiction runs in your family or in your own past, or perhaps alcohol reminds you of a past experience or a way of life that didn't honor the Lord, or perhaps it's damaged relationships in your past. In cases like these, you've determined that it's wise for you to not partake because it takes you places that do not honor the Lord. You don't hold others to that standard. You don't judge others for not holding to that standard, but you choose to abstain out of this sense of personal, spiritual, and biblical wisdom. Now, the examples that I've just referenced here are, are not examples born of a weak conscience, but this last one is. There are those who abstain for a reason something like the Jewish believers still kept their kosher laws. You grew up in a church culture that preached absolute prohibition, that taught that Jesus turned water to welches and not wine, or that God only permitted people to drink wine because the water was bad for them, or that alcohol content of wine in biblical times was lower, which is true, by the way, 
and had no intoxicating effect, which is wrong, by the way. And so your conscience has been so formed by your tradition that even if you can come to the conclusion that the Bible permits alcohol usage within tight boundaries, you can't get past the feeling that you would be sinning if you took a drink. And also, maybe, that others are sinning if they drink. And also that maybe you're something of a better Christian because you don't. So, right now, place yourself on that continuum. I hope you're not one of those that throws caution to the wind and disregards the Bible's commands about drunkenness, and I hope that you're not one of those who are pretending that the Bible uh, doesn't say anything at all about partaking of alcohol. I mean, because, again, those disregard Scripture, and those things need to be repented of. I hope that everybody here is somewhere in the middle. I want you to place yourself on that continuum, and now having done so, let's go back through the principles that Paul has highlighted for us in our passage. First, in matters of conscience, seek unity. If you drink in moderation, you are not to mock those who do not have your freedom or to try to jam your convictions down the throats of those who abstain. You don't order a drink for dinner when you're out with friends who abstain, and you don't serve alcohol in your home when you have friends over who abstain. If you abstain, you aren't to judge those who do have the freedom to drink or to hold yourself up as more holy than moderate drinkers, especially since this passage would say that it's very possible that your opinion is the less mature one. You aren't to gossip about who you saw drinking while you were out to eat or who you saw in the parking lot of the liquor store. Why these attitudes and actions from different ends of a matter of conscience? Simply this, to preserve unity in the body of Christ over a matter that is ultimately one of personal conviction before the Lord. Next, in matters of conscience, give glory. If you have a freedom of conscience to drink, you are to practice it to the glory of God, which means that you are to never be anywhere near the boundary marker of intoxication. When you drink, you can always safely drive. When you drink, you remain in full control of your emotions and reasoning and vocal volume. I'll share with you like I shared with my children when they came of age. You'll never be in trouble with one of anything, but after that, you make a choice. Honor God with those choices. But I also think that giving glory should be considered in the situations in which you might drink. I think there's a difference between having a drink at a restaurant and having a drink at a bar or having a drink with a few friends and having a drink at a big raucous party. What I'm saying is that sometimes the environment isn't conducive to glorifying God, and that should impact your decision in those situations about drinking. Now, if you abstain, you are to abstain to the glory of God. And that means you check any judgmental spirit that you might have towards those who don't abstain. It means that you understand that it's very likely that you abstain from a place of weakness and not superiority, and so you don't hold yourself up self-righteously against those who don't abstain. So in the matter of alcohol, seek unity, give glory, 
And then finally, in matters of conscience concerning alcohol, exercise caution. If, if you don't have the freedom of conscience to drink, or if you do actually have the freedom of conscience to drink, don't forget that among those who experience God's wrath in Romans 1 are drunkards. It is a serious, serious thing for a believer in Christ to be inebriated, ever. And to regularly violate the prohibition to drunkenness is to call into question the authenticity of your salvation. Now, if your conscience leads you to abstain, don't violate your conscience, ever. If you don't feel the freedom to drink, don't. God gives us our conscience as an early warning system against sin, so we should never violate that check that we have in our spirit about something, even if the boundary of that check isn't fully informed by Scripture, because it will teach us to blow through those early warning signals in our lives to the point that we may ignore them completely when Scripture calls us to true obedience on something that is not a matter of conscience at all. Now, before we close, let me tell you why it was important to us to take this opportunity to apply this passage today uh, to decisions about alcohol. First, I, it was a natural flow. I mean, it was the easiest modern-day thing to point to. But more importantly, there's a growing acceptance of alcohol in church culture today, especially among younger members. Time was when the old joke applied. Jews don't acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. Protestants don't acknowledge the authority of the Pope. Baptists don't acknowledge one another in the liquor store. <laughs> and that's funny because everybody has had one of those kinds of experiences. It's not that way anymore, though. And it has greatly concerned us as leaders that our church family was receiving zero biblical instruction on this important and potentially dangerous subject because of the customs associated with abstinence in our church tradition. As preachers and as elders, we have to be stewards of our people, and we frankly weren't being because we didn't want to deal with the potential blowback of bringing the subject up, which we've dealt with before. It was time to address it. And now that the ice has been broken, we'll continue to instruct on this subject when the text that we are preaching permits us to. Second, addressing this will set the stage for helping us address something that is not a matter of conscience, the day that will soon come when Kansans will have to decide on the legalization of recreational marijuana. Knowing what the Bible really says about alcohol, proceed with caution and reject drunkenness allows us to clearly and non-hypocritically speak to why all recreational marijuana usage is a sin. Alcohol, according to Scripture, can be received with thanksgiving to God, short of the intoxication that is prohibited by Scripture. The purpose of recreational marijuana is intoxication. Thus, it is always a violation of Scripture. That decision will face Kansans in the next few years, and we'll step back into it when the time comes. But the final and most important reason to bring this up is because we undermine the authority of God's Word when we twist it to fit our biases. 
And this is the plague of the age. When younger generations hear, those of us who grew up in an era of Bible teaching that essentially pretended that alcohol was nowhere to be found on the pages of Scripture, and who said Scripture absolutely prohibits its use, when they hear us say that, they wonder, well, what else are they pretending Scripture to say to fit their biases? Are they twisting Scripture to teach what they want to about sexuality? Are they doing the same thing about gender? If you, if you think I'm overstating this, then what you are revealing to me is that you've never talked to a young person starting to drift from their faith. They pay attention to these things. They have a hypocrisy meter that is highly refined. And if we are not taking Scripture seriously and being unafraid to say what it says, even if it violates our biases, then we are doing them a disservice and we are thumbing our nose at the authority of God in our lives. The bottom line is this. We should never be afraid of what Scripture says to us, even if it challenges long-held notions. Now, there's going to be more to say on matters of conscience next week. That's why this is part one of a two-part sermon. Part two will be applied differently and run in a different direction, but it's important to have this as